Audiobook. Audiobook release. Podcast. Authors. Narrators. Interviews. Industry. News. Reviews. Sponsored by eAudioProductions.com. Welcome to the Audiobook Release Podcast. A show for audiobook lovers. Stay tuned as we share the latest news from the audiobook industry. We interview established and upcoming authors. We talk with popular narrators and review a wide range of audiobooks. Brought to you by eAudioProductions.com. Audiobook productions, podcast editing, music for media, voiceovers, song productions, and more. A mighty case against war. What America missed in U.S. history class and what we all can do now. Audiobook by Kathy Beckwith. Beckwith relates a history of America's wars that includes what America missed in U.S. history class. She details why war sells, the fallacies of common justifications for war, true costs of war, and sensible alternatives. Beckwith does not sidestep the tough questions. What about Hitler and genocide? If not war, then what? A Mighty Case Against War proposes that this culturally supported, deeply entrenched system of governmental violence is simply too costly, destructive, counterproductive, and inhumane to leave unchallenged. This is a resource for youth and adults alike, from peace-building activists to career military to those who doubt that a world beyond war is even possible. The audiobook narration invites the listener to explore not just a past from which to learn, but a future full of hope for America and for our world. A Mighty Case Against War. Audiobook by Kathy Beckwith. Narrated by Kathy Beckwith and Wayne Beckwith. Produced by eAudioProductions.com. Available at your favorite audiobook store. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Release Podcast. I'm Matt Rafferty. And I'm Leah Rafferty. Today our guest is Kathy Beckwith. and She's a mediation trainer from Dayton, Oregon. She's worked for over two decades with schools and community mediation programs. Kathy's latest book is A Mighty Case Against War, What America Missed in U.S. History Class and What We All Can Do Now. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to speak with you. Well, Kathy, tell us a little bit about yourself, like your younger years and where you grew up in things. Sure. Um, I grew up on a farm here in Western Oregon. In fact, just a quarter mile down the road from where we live right now. Uh, we moved back to be closer to family as our kids were growing up. But as a child, there was a great big woods behind the farm that I could play in, lots of brothers and sisters, an irrigation pond to swim in. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it was dug just to be able to irrigate the farm, but the swimming pools were, well, there was none in our area then. So kids would come get notes from their parents and bring them out to the farm and come swimming with us in the irrigation pond. Wow. That's fun. fun. It it was good. And that's where most of us kids learned to swim. So it it had double duty. (laughs) And then how about after you graduated from high school, what kind of things did you do? Well, for me, there was no choice, really. My hope had always been to go to Northwest Nazarene College, now University in Idaho. And that's where I headed off to, where I met my husband. And it was a good place for me then. 
But I think the big things, I mean, I'm sure there are all kinds of little things that happened during those years that impacted me. But two big things, I think right after college, I went on what was the University of the Seven Seas then, now it's called Semester at Sea, uh, a floating campus where we went around the world and studied as we did, which was really an amazing experience. (laughs) Unbelievable. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it was. And we had good professors. And uh, of course, it was so practical because you were motivated. You were going to be in port, you know, coming up. So you wanted to learn. And then uh, my husband and I joined the Peace Corps and went to India in a kitchen gardening and horticulture program. (laughs) Wow. Look what you've done at such a young age. (laughs) Yeah, that opened doors to draw us back to India over and over again and also left us being never able to be the same people we were before we left to go to India. So it was a wonderful experience. So how did it change you You after seeing how other people lived, other cultures lived, or what was the difference? I think the main thing at that time was living with people of other faiths. Their way of living was who they were, and it became, I mean, there was never any way of going back to kind of exclusive truth. Okay. (laughs) Uh, You know, it made a broader community for us. I mean, there were just wonderful people there that we wanted to go back and see again and again. So we did. We would go back to our village we started a thing to have a family sabbatical Thought, you know, if college profs can do this every seven years, why not a family do this? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. It was. And for the very same reason, I think it works in academia. We felt renewed. We learned new things, had new experiences. And so we ended up going to India to work at a Cody Connell International School, a boarding school in South India. And then we would always go back to our village and visit the families there that we were with. So it just felt like India became part ours <laughs> and hopefully we are part of it. So, Well, how did that influence your writing in future years? Well, one project that is underway right now and that I will I'll plow into and make sure I get you know, get published and get out there is a book about a high school kid that ends up going to India and how it transforms her life as she is trying to escape from the guilt of some things that went wrong here. Uh, So that definitely the content of that story is uh, very much tied to it. But I'm sure, you know, um, the the whole experience, you know, all of my work in conflict resolution and peacemaking is has to be tied to the idea that there are people around the world. And if we get to know them, they're not so unlike us. And it's worth it's worth learning how to work together. And since a lot of my writing and my work has been in conflict resolution, um, I'm sure it's impacted me. Yes. Very admirable. So in your bio, we see that you worked for a school system. Um, I worked as a private contractor working with the schools to train students in mediation. So with your professional background as a mediator for elementary schools, do you feel that had a, a say in your deciding to become an author also? Well, it definitely did because that 
propelled me into uh, getting materials that we could use for our mediation trainings. I had worked in community mediation as a mediator and then just so fortunately, the counselor at the school that my kids went to said, you know, you like to volunteer here. How about helping us get something going with kids mediating for each other? And that was an amazing opportunity. And for me, it opened up so much to working in other school districts and and just seeing the power that kids have when we give them tools or they learn the tools of problem solving, how much they care, how creative they are, and how eager they are to help each other. But we didn't have the materials. I mean, there were some available, but we wanted it specifically geared for not just mediation training, but for a broader look, our attitudes toward conflict and uh, tools that people use in relationships all the time, and then how those things could be applied to, uh, to problem solving. So we actually printed up you know, and then had it spiral bound a book for the kids. Then when someone at the Department of Education learned what we were doing and liked the idea, he said, you know, I have a publisher in mind that I think would really like to have your materials. So that was the start. The first, you know, published book that I did was a curriculum guide for grades three to six in conflict resolution, including that segment on mediation training. And then that opened up more with them, a book called If You Choose Not to Hit, A Dozen Skills That Make Kids Powerful Problem Solvers. And they also did a YA on a very different topic. It was teens involved in uh, sexual abuse prevention. But that was a wonderful um, inroad, I think, to the publishing world just because of the content that you know, my work professionally had had given me. Kathy, how did you decide to write your first book? Well, since that was tied so directly to conflict resolution training materials, the I, I'd like to answer that by describing what happened with my second picture book, Playing War. And it was it was a very different experience. I hadn't planned that I would, you know, write this, you know, write a, a text, a manuscript for a picture book. But I was talking to a young boy from our school in, in my neighborhood, a really cool kid. And he said to me, I wish we had a war for kids, a real one, because Mm. we could beat anybody big time. And that was like, oh my gosh, you know, and a (laughs) a few days later, another boy in the neighborhood asked if I knew where he could get some more matching camouflage. I forget which piece he was missing for his outfit and added, because I really want to be in a war. And I thought, we have deceived the children. And maybe we've deceived ourselves and they picked it up, but something is wrong. And about the same time, I had read a story about what happened to a girl in Iraq at the hands of U.S. bombing. And she was almost the same age as my daughter. And those things just created turmoil within me. And I started work on a script about some really cool kids who love to play war using pine cones for grenades and, you know, sticks and whatever. But a new little boy comes to their neighborhood, Samir, and he doesn't know their game of war, but he knows mm-hmm. war. And his mm-hmm. story changes their play. And it's 
it's in a way, I mean, it's, it's maybe startling, but it's also very gentle. And it talks about friendship and how friendship and empathy um, are there with children and what they do with it. So that was, that was an example of how something from outside of me came to motivate. I love that you know, because story. so many people in all our little towns or cities, we're all isolated and we only know, especially with children I'm talking about mostly, only know our little bubbles. And I think that's wonderful that you were able to integrate that child and show that, you know, like you said in the beginning, that there's a big world out there and we all need to get to know each other. So that sounds like a wonderful book. Thank you. Congratulations. And you know, when I submitted it to the publisher, they knew, in fact, they talked with me about it being said that Samir was from Afghanistan. And I had never imagined that. I, I knew Samir was from Iraq. And it was because their community had several Afghani families that were refugees. And so I think it became a, a story that could speak more broadly about war and how kids pick up what's going on around them when we may not even realize it. Wow. That's really interesting how those children in your neighborhood influenced you writing that book just by asking a few questions and sparking up a conversation with you. Yeah, they sure did. Of all the books you ever read, what do you find the most interesting? I think one that has been the most interesting to me is one that was the most startling. And it was when I had been doing research probably for not just months, but years on my book, A Mighty Case Against War, What America Missed in U.S. History Class and What We All Can Do Now. David Swanson wrote a book called When the World Outlawed War. And I thought, okay, I have not heard of this book. Uh, and I've not heard of this circumstance. When did that happen? And it was it was uh, happening in the late 1920s when millions of Americans were so tired of war. It was signed into law. This was the Kellogg-Briand Pact. It was a treaty that outlawed the use of war as a means of resolving conflict, period. And I had never heard of it. It was ratified. The U.S. Senate advised ratification. It was signed into law in January 1929. Millions and millions of Americans said they were ready for the end of war. And they raised such a fervor and a voice that those in government had to listen and join the effort. And they made it the law of this land. And it's still the law of the land. But I was shocked. Well, like, okay, where where is it? It doesn't seem, I mean, I don't hear of millions and millions of people, you know, requesting this. So I got out this U.S. history book that I'd kept on hand as I was doing this project. It's 1,072 pages, I think. And I looked for it. Yeah, it was there. Two sentences. Two short sentences dismissing it. So as insignificant. And so I think that book, I would say, was one of the most interesting because I saw an example of people rising up and speaking and acting by the millions. And it gave me hope that we have something already here that we can reclaim if we will just see that it is necessary and and how beneficial it can be. So 
Yeah. Although I did, I did say, um, I, I, when you ask about interesting books, I have to say, Leah and Matt, that some of the picture books <laughs> that I adore are very, uh, very special to me and very interesting. So that's another story. <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> so that leads us to your current book, Mighty Case Against War, What American Missed in U.S. History Class and What We All Can Do Now. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah, actually, I have a book here on my desk. And if you don't mind, I just like to read the little snippet from the back. Sure. For many Americans, their last look at U.S. history was their junior year in high school. A Mighty Case Against War challenges America and all people to revisit the stories of how nations have dealt with conflict in order to see how our past informs our present and can mold our decisions for the future. A Mighty Case Against War begins with a startling account of America's wars, looks at why war sells, and exposes the fallacies of some of our most influential justifications for war, the myths. <laughs> Beckwith does not sidestep the tough questions. What about Hitler and genocide? If not war, then what? Given military technology, the power to destroy is greater than at any time in human history. Beckwith proposes that our culturally supported, deeply entrenched system of governmental violence is simply too costly, destructive, counterproductive, and inhumane to leave unchallenged. And I, I appreciate that cover you know, a summary, because that's the heart of it. It's just something that it's, it's, it's no good. It's known now that nonviolent conflict resolution and the work that is done, the instances of, you know, changes that come about by nonviolence are way more effective than by violence. And it, you know, more often leaves democratic systems in place once the, the, the conflict is over. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a very interesting book. What was the most challenging part of, of writing it for you, Kathy? I think that was because I was not a historian. I think I became concerned about what our country was doing. I never really set out to write this book. I became curious about something my dad had said once. He, he had a high school teacher that mentioned that the, the loans the U.S. bankers had made to the Brits was a big cause for the U.S. entering World War I. And I thought, what? You know, is my, did my dad get that right? Because that doesn't, <laughs> sound, that doesn't sound like a good way, you know, a good reason for mm -hmm. us entering the war. You know, and then um, I didn't, I definitely was not a war protester or peacemaker growing up. In fact, you know, my dad was in the army. Uh, military uh, was a big thing in our family, I think, for some of the kids in the family. So, you know, when I was just a newly married woman, and my husband was being, uh, you know, signed up for the draft for Vietnam, my concern wasn't what was going on in that country. It was like, I would love to have him be with me and finish college. And then we wanted to go in the Peace Corps. You know, um, I was born in World War II, of course, so wouldn't know about that. In Korea, I didn't 
know anything about mm-hmm. as a little girl. So it wasn't until the Gulf War that I began raising some questions about okay. what our country was doing. And then, you know, af- by the time we were in Afghanistan and Iraq, I definitely was seeing a different perspective on things. So I decided to go back and look at America's story of war. And when I did that, as I got into it, I thought, oh, oh my golly, this is not what I learned in U.S. history class. This is not, I, I'm sure this is not what most people think. When you see now that information is available about both sides to a conflict and what both sides were saying, that there were alternatives that were available that were not you know, pursued. It just, well, I think, uh, you know, it is a sad and bleak history. And so for me, I think one of the challenges you said, Matt, what was challenging? One thing was the disappointment that I felt in our government actions, like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I don't, I don't want to, to think that this was what it was, Mm -hmm. but also just the huge commitment that it was to take, okay, I'll start with the revolutionary war, go all the way through. I mentioned things about Afghanistan and Iraq, but I left some of that for the reader to pull together in the same way that I had other things had done the other wars, but each one follows a pattern of background, background for each side, what they were saying, then alternatives that are now known that were not used, and then the cost of war uh, financially and in human terms. Yes. So this sounds very overwhelming. So how did you decide where, what, where did you go for your research? I, I headed to the libraries. We have okay. two universities very close to home, George Fox oh, University in, in Newburgh and Linfield in McMinnville. And, and we have a great public library here. Um, so those were for primary resources. Then George Fox University happened to be doing a class on war and conscience at that time. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's meant to be, right? I mean, this has all fallen in place. It did. And that prof, Ralph Beebe, did a very thorough job of going through each war, definitely not giving, you know, reactions to was this right or not, you know, but but letting the students make their own determinations, but did a a good uh, recount of the history. So I ended up taking that class twice. (laughs) I just wanted to really soak it in. And then the internet, I think, was a wonderful resource. And I ordered a whole bunch of books and I talked to a lot of vets and went to uh, Linfield at that time was doing a, a series on wars that they had some panel discussions. So I got in on that. It was a gathering of a lot of lot of resources and then sitting down and sorting through what I'd written and just being willing to take the time. Well, that is fantastic. That's just great that you had that much time and you were, you were able to put so many hours into it. That is just a fantastic story. And you know, Matt, that is, I think that's one thing why this book is so valuable to me and why it means so much to me. I don't think many people would want to do this. I mean, they would say, why would I spend 
months or years of my life researching something that isn't really too pleasant to know about. You know, I don't want to do that much work. And I can say now, especially having the audiobook, which I know comes in at under 12 hours, it's 11 hours and something. Please, if you will, be curious enough to borrow the work that I've done. Let me let me present to you what I've found because I did do that work. And I think it's fair that we as Americans know what our money's doing, what is being done in our name, and what kind of alternatives we're not learning about um, so that we can make a decision. Do we want things to be different? And you don't have to do years of research. I think there'll be things there that people will say, uh, really? I want to check this out. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good. Well, you get the conversation going, right? Yes. And that's Wonderful. It. If I can just spark curiosity. People will say, I want to know more. And I did. I was meticulous with endnotes. There are 400 and some. And I I wrote down all the sources so people could go back and check because I think some of it will seem like, oh, really? (laughs) And uh, I'm glad that's there. And I think it's something that people could say, okay, I mean, it's geared for teens through adults. And I think it's written in an engaging manner that it's pretty easy to get into. And I will say half of the book is a historical rundown on our wars, that part. But the second half of the book is looking at the myths that we hold to be precious, looking at alternatives that we have, things that are really working and have worked, and then asking, what can we do now? It's not a hard read. I think it's, you know, something that people could feel curious about. Great. So with all this information, how did you come up with the title of the book? Was that difficult? Actually, that was, I was attending a workshop on ebook production and the was there and I just said, can I just get your reaction to a title? And I had something else. And he said, uh, before I even know what it is, tell me what your book is about. And I said, well, and this is when I was really into the rundown on the history of the various wars. I said, it's actually turning out to be a mighty case against war. And he said, that's your title. Oh, wow. And he said, tell people what they're going to get. And I went with that. And, you know, at first I thought, is that a little arrogant? You know, the word mighty, but, you know, it, it is, that's what it is. It is a mighty case. (laughs) Well, I did have another title in mind, and sometimes I've gone back and wondered, you know, because I think there are people that would see the title A Mighty Case Against War, and they they would say, ah, war is inevitable. You know, the world's never going to change. We need war. So they wouldn't pick it up. But the other people who would say, really, I want to know. Maybe I need to know. So they would. But I had wondered, too, about just having the title war, question mark. And maybe, you know, with the Spanish sentence structure, the question mark comes at the beginning as well as the end. And I was just thinking that could kind of show uh, we need to maybe look at this, question it from 
backward. <laughs> but anyway, I'm trying not to second guess what I did. We'll use this title for now. And I I think it it says what I discovered anyway. Excellent. So you recently created an audio version of your book, A Mighty Case Against War, and that was produced by eaudioproductions.com. I understand that you did the audio for that. How did that come about? I did. And it was, I mean, I never could have done it without the crew, with the, without Elias and uh, E-Audio Productions, because, I mean, how would you? I knew nothing about doing that. But um, my son commutes to work um, in Portland about an hour a day. And he said, Mom, it's great to have a print book, but people need an audio book. book. A lot of people, you know, want that form. And I just thought, if I'm going to do that, if there's any possible way, I want to narrate it myself. I've worked with this. It's become a part of my life. I know the parts that are hard to read. I know a part that I just thought I will cry as I read this. But then I thought, I don't care. It needs to be cried over because it is, it's what happened in that circumstance. So I just began exploring and um, found e-audio productions and found that they would keep in really good communication with me and take me step by step. And because they said they would do that, um, I just said, okay, if they will even let me know the equipment I need and, you know, how to go about it, give me feedback. I did, um, I did have help with reading some of the quotations uh, in, you know, in the early part of the book too, because it was just a lot of, you know, reading and I wanted variation in voice. It worked, I think, very well. And I feel very, very pleased with the, you know, with the results. And now it's something that is portable and people can take it as they're, right. you know, commuting to work or just want to relax and listen to it before. Right. That's time. great. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Advice. Well, I think Maybe um, if it's just words, it would be something that I keep printed above the door, front door as we're leaving. And I have it right here on my computer. It's be nice first. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> but I also think be curious would be very good uh, advice and something I've advised myself. I, and I'm sure it seems like have. it with the book. <laughs> yes, that's, yeah. that's for sure. Another bit of advice is see the wonder, you know, and I think in some of the picture books that I'm working on now that that thing of seeing the wonder in life, in kids, in circumstances, in our earth helps us feel how precious our life is and how valuable it is and, you know, why we should work for, you know, the good of all. But I think there have been... With the best advice, maybe there are a couple of tools that because of trainings that I've had been a participant in and the training that I do in mediation, I would say the best piece of tool advice is to bounce back instead paraphrasing. So instead of getting defensive or thinking or interrupting somebody or knowing you know what it is. Bounce back and make sure you understand their perspective. 
and do that's that. That's wonderful. Yeah, that, I mean, that is so helpful. And I even, I use a parrot as a, you know, a little toy in my training to toss out as we practice bounce backs just because the parrot is known for being able to, mm, repeat, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I have right. a, I have a big parrot on my kitchen wall <laughs> to remind me to bounce back. <laughs> but another well, piece of advice was um, hold family meetings. And we've been doing that since our kids were little. And Wayne and I still have family meetings now. And so that's that's huge. And then one other thing was one of the uh, reporters for our local newspaper, her, her little conclusion to these special articles she does every, every issue or, or a couple of issues is everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. And That's the truth. Yeah. The truth. Well, I think what's interesting is that you have, it looks like since day one of your life, have been curious, have sought out more information, trying to be a life learner. And I bet you have not only, it seems like helped others, not related to you, because now you're a whole bunch of students, we'll say, but I'm sure your family members really enjoy that you have such a strong sense of knowledge and wanting to teach others. Well, thank you, Leah. I, I hope it's something we feel we're doing together. Yeah. Kathy, what are some of your favorite writers and, and the books that they've written that have influenced you? Oh, my. <laughs> I I admit that they are the writers of what I call treasures for all ages. The picture books that I absolutely love and that I've loved sharing with my kids over years and now my grandkids. A new book out last year that is so good is Mr. Noggenbody Gets a Hammer. David Shannon is the author, and I'm sure he took that from, in fact, it's a quote that I I use in my book too, by Abraham Maslow. When the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem begins to resemble a nail. Mm -hmm. And the huge implications that has in so many realms of life, but here David has made it a little character in the shape of an egg who goes around fixing everything with his new hammer. And kids love it. My adult son read it to our granddaughter and she just said, again, again. Uh (laughs) You know, so I think picture books hold wisdom for the age two to 102. And, Mm -hmm. and they're, um, there are so many others that tell the story that, you know, that I'm sure has influenced my war book. You know, Maggie and the Goodbye Gift and Enemy Pie are picture books about what happens when strangers become known. Duck Rabbit about perspectives and a picture book delightful called Giraffes Can't Dance is about everyone hearing their own music. One of our favorites in our family is the doorbell rang and we did, we acted it out for a family reunion over on the coast. <laughs> and yeah. one of those times we were in India, we did it at, at a boarding school hostel there. The kids, you know, did it. A lunch thief is a reinforcement of that thing that everybody has a story. And, and these are things that I see impacting me and my family. And I'm so glad for other writers that will do these amazing books. And also, I just say anything that Tilbury House publishes, 
because they're writing books about diversity and cultural awareness. And so there are so many treasures. I've been a part of SCBWI, the Society of Book Writers and Illustrators, for a couple of decades now. And, and it's a group that I just see helping helping this world be a better place through stories that are meaningful and that hold hope and that show the wonder. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. That's wonderful. Well, that's actually interesting because I actually like picture books myself also. And I'll go to my library and get some out. And the librarian who knows my family said, you don't have any young kids. And I'm like, <laughs> I know, but you can still learn a lot from these uh, books. So I too yeah. love those books. So yeah. And yeah. for anyone listening, go and get a children's book because there are lots of lessons and also history to be learned. And if you haven't seen one in a while, the illustrations are just amazing yeah. in some books these days. It's fantastic. The artwork. You're great. Yeah, <laughs> that's a message to share for sure. Right. Leah, can I just add one more thing? Oh, yeah, sure. It's just how this coronavirus thing has affected me, I think, and a writer. And I don't know if this would be what others will want to learn from or take from me. But I think I've felt um, maybe it isn't forever this life that I love so dearly. And so what really is my priority? And people have joked about, yeah, this is a time to clean out the storage. And, you know, the funniest thing for me, I wanted to get my words in order. I wanted to get my stories in order. And I have stories that I've worked on, some poetry I've done in filing cabinet. And I thought, no, nobody's going to want to look through a filing cabinet. In fact, I have, you know, on my wall here in my office, a note to my kids probably that if I wouldn't survive before this young adult novel that I'm working on is done, here are the instructions to at least oh, get okay. print. And I thought, oh, okay, now what have you done? You're leaving your writing project as a clean out, your cluttered. <laughs> and I thought, no, I don't want that. I want to celebrate my writing. I want to enjoy it while I'm living. I want to share it. And so I want to encourage people who are writing or have a story to be open both to traditional publishing and to self-publishing in some way that they would find to get that book into print. And so what I've been working on just recently is a, a second collection of some of my manuscripts that I've done. I've just sent it off and, you know, it's being made and will come back to me. I'm going to work on a third one that will include some of my poetry and essays so that that those things I have and I will be able to share. And I've made a plan for how I'm going to get this YA novel about India published. <laughs> and Excellent. I just think, well, life is precious, but part of what makes it precious is sharing the joy with other people. And so that's one of my goals now. And if that can be a part of someone else's story, find a way to get what you've done and what you want to have out to get it out now and then we'll all manage this virus thing too but we'll have our priorities worked on right 
That's great advice. I mean, don't put things off because you never know whether you're going to be able to finish them. That's great advice. Well, Kathy, it's been so nice speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time out tonight to be on this episode of the Audiobook Release Podcast. Thanks, you two, for letting me visit with you and for helping me share some of this story that's been my journey. Yeah, it was great <laughs> well, It's been our to pleasure. You, yeah, you're very interesting to listen to. So thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. It's too bad you don't live closer. We could get together for you know, a piece of pie or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting Gary. to hear more of your stories. Have a great night. It was really nice meeting you. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Matt. Sure. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye, Kathy. Thank you for listening to the Audiobook Release Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to ensure you'll never miss an episode. We value your opinion, so feel free to post a rating or review. For feedback, inquiries, and more about our audiobook production and publishing services, visit www.audiobookrelease.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Audiobook Release Podcast. Brought to you by eAudioProductions.com. Audiobook Productions, Podcast Editing, Music for Media, Voice Service, Song Productions, and more.